Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Well, hey, everybody. I haven't seen you in 2022. It's good to be back. My name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here. I wasn't here last week because I got the COVID and uh, doing okay. The family's good. I hold up in my bedroom for a week and Sarah did all the family things all on her own. So she's in a good mood. Um, it's good to be back. We are starting a series on feasting. I find it, or fasting and feasting, I find it kind of funny. Uh, every once in a while, I'll teach things that, that necessarily people wouldn't choose to be taught. And I know that because I'll say the name of the series. Like, for example, a couple years ago, we did an eight-week, we were supposed to do an eight-week series on Leviticus. And when I told people that, they responded with, huh, or really, or my favorite, why, Right? And COVID happened and we had to cancel it. And then we were supposed to start this series on fasting. And again, people looked at me and said, huh, really? Why? <laughs> you know? And then I got COVID, but we're powering through. And today we're starting a series, a three-week series on the disciplines, the practices of fasting and feasting. But before we dive in, if you're new to CBC, if you're watching online, tons of people today because of the COVID outbreak, welcome. And we start by entering this place and simply acknowledging that God is near. Acknowledging that God has a word for us today. Acknowledging that he's good to us and he speaks to us. And so what we do before we open any scripture this morning, before we have a teaching time, is we recognize this space is fundamentally different than the culture that we come in from. We live in a culture of criticism and a culture of complaining and a culture of, if I can prove that you're wrong and I'm right, I'm better for it. And this is not that space. We come here today and we simply say, God, what are you teaching me? We want to not tear down what's happening, but instead ask the question, where is God speaking to me today? How can we contribute to the conversation of faith this morning? And so we just take a second at the beginning and we readjust our heart a little bit and we say a quick prayer and we ask that the Spirit meet us right where we are today because that's what God does all the time. So pray with me. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful that we can gather. I'm thankful that we have the ability to meet with people that aren't in this space so that they might know that they're loved, that they might know that God has a word for them, that they might know that God is near. As we talk about the topic of fasting today, Holy Spirit, go before us and teach us. Whatever baggage we might have around this topic, and I'm sure there's some, I pray that we can see through that into the word that you have for us today. If you're comfortable, I'd, I'd just ask that you take a, a few seconds and say a prayer to yourself and ask that the Holy Spirit might speak to your spirit this morning, that you might see the goodness of God in our texts. And I say pray for me, that the Holy Spirit might use my preparation and my words to ultimately promote the goodness of God, the practices that we look at this morning.
And probably sings in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning we're talking about fasting. The next two weeks are fasting, and then the last week is feasting, because here's a spoiler. As a culture, we're pretty much better at feasting than fasting, all right? It was about a year ago, I think, it was end of January that I got on the stage, and every once in a while as a communicator, I'll say things that I think are really, really good, and then I get off the stage, and people tell me that what I said wasn't what I intended to say. So a year ago, I got on the stage, and I said, my theme for the year is rest. I want to be better at resting. I specifically want to get up earlier in the morning, and I had a, some of you know what I'm talking about already, I had a goal in mind, and my goal, and this is how I phrased it, was I want to beat my kid up in the morning. <laughs> you know that? And I kept saying it again and again and again. I meant I want to wake up before my daughter, but you twisted people took it in another way. I went back and heard it again. I was like, oh, I cannot hear it now. That's horrible. <laughs> and so I come to another year, and we talk about practices around the time of January. And this year for me, <clears throat> I'm adding something to that. Not only do I want to get up before my daughter in the morning, man, I want to have a firm bedtime. I'm a night owl, always have been. I'm the kind of guy that if there's work to be done, I like working from 11 p.m. to 11 a.m., much more than a.m. to p.m. And so this year, I want to go to bed by 11 p.m. every night. That is early for me. And let me tell you why that's hard. Because all day long is pretty good and stressful and good and hard, especially with two toddlers. And you wake up in the morning and a kid is screaming already out of joy or fear or anger. It doesn't matter. They're just yelling. And by 8 o'clock or so, we finally get the kids down to bed. And you have this beautiful reminder of what life was like before you made these decisions to get you here. You have this reminder of what peace is again. You have this reminder that you had time that was yours. And every night I fight because I just want to soak that in and never go to sleep again because I know what's going to happen at 6 a.m., even though it's beautiful and worth it. Or I could go to sleep and be rested for the morning. There's this fight inside of me of do I, do I give in to the desire of my heart or, or do I know what I should do and choose discipline over desire? Here's why I bring that up. We're talking about fasting, and we have to first acknowledge that we live in a culture that values desire over discipline. We're a culture that values indulgence. We value consumption. According to a 2016 study, 41% of Americans who made New Year's resolutions, out of all those 41% of people that did it, only 9% felt they were successful at the end of the year. I had a friend of mine growing up, and a mentor when I first got this gig, and he would say, Charlie, if you want to know what your kids are like one day, always look at their friends. Invite them over to your house. Your kids are a reflection of who they hang around, whether you want to look in that mirror or not. And it's true. If you want to know culturally where we're at and what we value, which is important as we work out our faith in our culture, you have to look at what we value as a culture, and there's no better place to find what we value in a consumer culture than how we're marketed to in the first place. Because what markets to us sells us. It shows us what we value. And just look at some of the marketing slogans and campaigns that we use. I mean, probably the most well-known one is Nike, right? Nike, just do it, for example. You have beauty campaigns like Estee Lauder that says, because you're worth it, or my favorite Lay's commercial was, I bet you can't eat just one. We are not fighting for fasting in our campaigns on TV, you know? Burger King says, have it your way. But move beyond just the slogans that we're marketed to, find the mantras of our culture. 
You have things like, well, the heart wants what it wants, and you do you, or back in the day when I was in high school and college, you had this YOLO movement, right? You only live once, so you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. When really, <laughs> when you think about it, YOLO should be a pretty solid slogan for a conservative culture if you think about it, you know? You only live once, so don't drink Mountain Dew in the morning, okay? It's not going to be worth it. This idea that as a consumer-driven culture, we simply like indulgences over discipline. One writer, Cornelius Plantinga, said this, In such a culture, the self exists to be explored, indulged, and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. We're talking about spiritual practices in a culture that doesn't like to practice things that are hard. We like to indulge. We don't like to give up. And if you want a stat that kind of symbolizes this in America, look no farther than food. Look no farther than food waste in this country. In 2016, the USDA did studies, and they they estimated that 30 to 40 percent of our national food supply is wasted. We have 133 billion pounds of food a year that's wasted. It's 1,800 bucks per family or $240 billion annually. Wasted food is the single largest category of material placed in any municipal landfill. We have to come to this realization that we are a consumer culture and it's cultivated a society of indulgence where desire is fed and discipline is fought. That's the world we live in. And there are some good things there, and there are some bad things there. We start by saying, this is who we are. And so how does our pursuit of Jesus, following Jesus, filter into how our culture says um, things are valued, how we live every single day? So you might be asking, what does this have to do with fasting? What we're going to learn today, where I want to get to, is this simply this idea that fasting fundamentally changes how we interact with our indulgences. It does. It changes how we see our desires and how we see discipline. And so we're going to look at Jesus today. We're going to look at Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, or Matthew 3 and Luke 3. And and we're going to talk about why Jesus fasted, what it did for him, and the purpose and power of fasting throughout the rhythms of the people of God. But before we get there, let's set some groundwork. So we call this month Spiritual Discipline Month. We've done this for a few years now. Talked about Sabbath and simplicity and solitude and silence and and prayer. And when we talk about spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines, this is how we define them. Spiritual disciplines are the way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing hearts. And so when we talk about it, we don't talk about them in a way that's legalistic. We simply invite people to participate. There are a litany of different practices or disciplines that you can get into. And simply all they do is they help shape our heart to take joy in Jesus in different ways. They help change our behavior not to make God happy, but so that we might find joy in the goodness of God in ways that we couldn't do without it. Step by step, day by day. Discipleship, the art of sanctification, is a long game proposition, not a short one. We're in this for a while, not for a moment. In in a culture that is definitely more directed at what can be done in the next five minutes, disciplines say, how am I gearing and shaping my life for the next five, 10, 15, 20 years? And so we talk about fasting this week and next week simply as an invitation to say, what is God asking you to do? Do you want to participate in this practice? Will it show you more of God's goodness? 
So along the way, don't feel like we're forcing this on you or this is something you have to do if you want God to be happy or you need to fast for three days before next Sunday. That's not it at all. We simply invite people to participate in these practices so that we might more clearly see why we need God. And really throughout the history of the church, that's what fasting has done. There's a couple different texts we can go to, but one of the most popular is in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is speaking and he says, when you fast... And when he talks about fasting, he's doing it in, we're going to hit this verse next week more in depth, but he, he gives this, this command to fast in the middle of these three other th- two other things, prayer and giving. And when he says when you, he doesn't say if you fast or if you want to fast, he assumes fasting is a rhythm of the people of God. And it has been from the beginning. Some writers would tell you that the very first command in all of the Bible was a command to fast. Adam, don't eat that apple, right? When really an apple, you get what I mean. That's not going to be good for you. Stay away from that food, please. And then you go to the law of God in the Old Testament, and you see that he called for a fast one day a year on Yom Kippur to focus more on the goodness of God in the middle of the plight of their iniquity or their sin. And as the rhythms of fasting grew to unhealthy levels, again, this next week, over the next couple thousand years, what we're left with is a simple idea. That fasting is a rhythm of God for the people of God to see more of God. And so, again, we approach it from a place where we invite people into fasting, but we also do it from a position of saying it was good for them and why. Why do they fast? What did it do? Why did Jesus fast? And that's where we're going to go. So you got a Bible. You can go to Luke chapter 3 and 4 if you want to. Same stories in Matthew 3 and 4. And we're going to bounce around a little bit, but essentially, you've got to get the context behind what's happening. So Jesus started his life, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, at the Christmas season, and he lived for 30 years, and he taught some, and he was a carpenter some, and he listened to his parents some, and then he gets to this age 30, you probably know the story in Matthew 3 and Luke 3, and there's this moment when he's baptized, you know? Let me read you just a bit of what it says in Matthew. After Jesus was baptized... As he was coming out of the water, the heavens opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my one dear Son. In him I take great delight. (laughs) You have to see the power in this moment. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite parts of the incarnation is the fact that Jesus waited 30 years before he started his ministry. It blows my mind. It helps me as a pastor just because so often I step into spaces that are hard in people's lives and it gives me license and freedom to simply say, you know, Jesus for most of his life just sat with people and the power of presence is, is powerful. And so for 30 years he sat with people and he loved on people and he taught people and this moment, this moment is the beginning of his ministry. This moment is the beginning of when he started the, the thing that he was born to do, that he took on flesh to do. But more than that, It's one of the few moments in the New Testament when you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit directly displayed at the same time. You see all members of the Trinity, but even more than that, Jesus from heaven hears his Father say, you are my Son, I am well pleased. What kid doesn't want to hear that from their dad, Jesus or not? It's a huge moment. If I have that moment now as a guy, or Jesus then, I'm taking that and saying, let's go, let, let's, let's go beat back the world and start my ministry. And so it, if you look at it from that context, 
it really takes what happens next into a profoundly different twist. He doesn't right away start healing people and beating back the devil and saying, follow me, and this is what I'll do for you. Right after that, if you look at the next verse in Matthew 4.1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he endured temptations from the devil. He has this high watermark, and then God says, now run into the wilderness and fast. I want to ask why that happened. And I think what you begin to see, at least in this text, is this connection between spirituality and physicality that so often we break. It really comes from a, a place of platonic thought. So thinker, philosopher Plato kind of had this idea that was born before him, but he made it popular where the spirit was his ultimate good and physicality weighed down the ultimate good of the spirit, called it forms and shadows. So you have this goodness that is the spirit and everything physical makes the spirit less good, less free, less impactful, less powerful. And that idea of this physical battling the spiritual that is ultimately good has woven into even how we teach the gospel. It's why I was brought up always thinking that the world is bad and one day I'll be set free from the confines of this physical world to what I'm supposed to be in the first place instead of a theology that said God made the world, he said it was good, it is good. It's the difference between seeing physicality as a part of our spirituality or physicality as divorced from our spirituality. We are created as one being. The Hebrew word for soul literally has it a mind, will, emotions, physicality that God created us so that our spirituality and our physicality might join in harmony to paint a bigger picture of what God is doing in and through his people. We are a physical people. We can't divorce that from our spirituality, and, and we, we know that to be true. I, I, I think that there are several places you can go to prove this. One of my favorites is um, I was talking to someone a few months ago, and they asked one of my favorite questions. They said, Charlie, in Romans, if it says that God knows what you're going to pray before you pray it, and that the Spirit utterances, spirit uses these utterances to pray for you on your behalf, why do I have to pray in the first place? I'm an efficient man. Why can't I just say, God, that, and move on, you know? You, you know, we're good. Give God the head nod and keep going on with my day because I think something happens to our souls and we acknowledge out loud that we need help. Something happens to our souls when physically we say out loud, God, I need you. I didn't come from a family of overly affectionate people and we knew that love always existed in my family, but we didn't necessarily say it out loud. And so when I got engaged, I remember looking at my soon-to-be wife, and I said to her, I guess we hadn't said I love you at that point. And so I said, well, I think we probably should say it now, right? I mean, I, I mean we're going to get married, so we should. I said, so, you know, Sarah, I, I mean, you know, I, I love you. And being blown away by the beauty of that moment, she... She said, I love you too. And then we got back to Dallas. I proposed on a rooftop in New York because I'm that guy. And um, we were leaving. I remember I was dropping her off at her car. And she said, hey, Charlie, I love you again. And I said, I'll say it, but you get it one time a week. I'm just not comfortable with it yet, you know? <laughs> and she said, really? I said, that's all I can give you right now, one time a week. You already got yours. Wait till next Monday. It's going to be epic, you know? And here's why I bring it up is because... I think saying something that we all know to be true in the first place changes us profoundly. I think there's a tie between our spirituality and our physicality that we can't divorce. And when we do, we're not as whole, 
We're as complete as God made us to be. It's why if the Cowboys lose tonight, I will not, I will lose my appetite <laughs> because I will not be in a place where I want to eat food after that kind of disastrous, disastrous Sunday afternoon. Our physicality is tied to our spirituality. So Jesus has this high water mark and he runs into the wilderness and decides not to eat. When, when the Bible talks about physicality, it uses this word flesh. And let's real quickly unpack this idea of flesh because it's really important when we talk about the idea of fasting and feasting. Flesh is used in a lot of different applications in the New Testament. It is one of those words that has different meanings for it, just like we have different meanings for words in our culture. And so you got to look at the context to get the idea of what's being said about the term flesh. So I'll give you a couple examples of how we see it differently in in, in Colossians or Corinthians 6.16, we see it used in terms of physicality, like so you will uh, be intimate with somebody and you'll become one flesh, literally two bodies joined together. Or in, in Peter, for example, he said all people are like grass, that's a grass, the same New Testament word for flesh. Or when Paul is talking in Philippians, he said we put confidence in the flesh. There, there he literally means as a whole people group of the Jewish people. So we see a larger scale idea of what flesh can mean, but far and away in the New Testament, flesh takes on a meaning not just of physicality, but of the impacts of our physicality because of our fall. So Ephesians 2 puts it like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Eugene Peterson defines it like this. I love this definition. Flesh is the corruption that sin has introduced to our very appetites and instincts. And so really what we get to is... Outside of even the Christian tradition, Thoreau talks about it, and some Jewish rabbis talk about it, Plato talks about it, this idea that there's two natures warring within us. And when the Bible talks about those two natures, it talks about the soul and the physical. It talks about the spirit and the desirous, the carnivorous nature of what's fallen among us. It talks about flesh and spirit. And now those two things are battling. Listen to how Paul writes about it. It's one of my favorite kind of diatribes in the New Testament. In Romans 7, Paul says this, the trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that's at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. That dude's on the Mount Rushmore of Jesus' followers. You know that? And he sounds a lot like me in that passage. (laughs) That that I want to be better at following Jesus, but there's this desire that seemingly overtakes and overwhelms at times. That we are a people that, that are designed to follow Jesus with all of our spirit and all of our soul and all of our body, but it's hard. When the Bible talks about flesh, it talks about this overwhelming desire we have to not do what we know to be good as we follow God together. One of my favorite writers, 
talks about his battle for flesh, and they said, here's how you know flesh is, is something that we fall into. If the devil died today, we'll still sin tomorrow, <laughs> you know? And so we come to this place where we look at ourselves culturally through resolutions or through stats on X, Y, and Z, through food, through crime, through depravity in the world, and we come to this simple conclusion that in the battle with our flesh, we become its slave, not its master. Jesus has this beautiful moment in the spirit when he's baptized and the Holy Spirit's there and the father says that this, this, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and then he runs into the wilderness and the question I have still is why? Because I think he knew something to be true that Paul says is true that we know through the scripture is true is a simple note that when we follow our flesh we ultimately fail. That's a truth from all of the scriptures from Adam and the apple to Noah when he got off the boat to, to Jacob and Esau when one of them wanted food so bad he gave his birth right away to the wanderings of the Israelites in the Old Testament. When they followed their flesh they ultimately fell. Hosea 13 puts it like this. He says, God said, when I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and then they forgot me. This idea that if we follow our flesh, we will forget that God is good. So Paul's saying that I, that I want to do these things, but this desire overwhelms me, and I don't know how to beat it back. Jesus has this moment when he has this intro into ministry, and then he runs away and he fasts. And to understand Jesus, just some basic Christology here, Jesus is fully God, fully man, you know, $10 word, hypostatic union, meaning that his substance is personal in both his deity and his humanity. He's 100% human, and he's 100% God. So all the desires that we feel in the flesh, Jesus felt in the flesh. He didn't skip out on temptation because he was God. All the desires you feel to do what Paul said to not follow, Jesus felt not to follow. And so he goes into the wilderness and he fasts. And, and you know the story. If you don't, you can read it in Matthew and Luke 3. There's this moment, 3 and 4, and, and, this, and the devil tempts him. There's three temptations. You probably know them. The first one is the devil says, hey, I know you're really hungry. It's been a while since you've eaten anything. There's a rock. Turn it into bread. And Jesus says, no, man will not live by, quote from Deuteronomy, bread alone, but by the word of God. So the devil is appealing to his appetite in the flesh. And then a little while later, he, he brings him up to the second temptation. He brings him up to this really high point in the temple, the Bible says. And the devil says, God has already given me this world right now. Do you want it back? Do you want it? If you bow down and worship me, all of this will be yours. We're moving from this carnal temptation of the flesh into this deeper-seated temptation of the flesh, which is our desire for power that we all have. And power is simply our desire for control, to control us and those around us in our situations and our circumstances. And so the devil says to Jesus, do you want control back? Bow down and worship me. These desires of the flesh for food, for power, and then finally, he goes after Jesus' pride. And the last temptation is he goes to Jesus on a mountain and he says, hey, the Bible says, if you throw yourself off this thing, that angels will catch you. That's how VIP you are, man. So throw yourself off and show me and everybody else that you're important because <laughs> God will catch you. And Jesus says, 
The Bible says not to put God to the test. I don't need to show you I'm important. That's the definition of meekness. I know I am because I know whose I am. And so you have this battle in the desert with Jesus and all sorts of kind of fleshly temptations, hunger and pride and power. Here's what I love about this story is Jesus is doing battle with the flesh in the desert and the weapon he chose to bring with him was fasting. You know that? Out of all, he knew what was going to happen. Jesus is, you know, knowing all things. He's omniscient. And so he knew when he went to the wilderness what he was going to do. It's this, this battle between his fleshly desires as a human and his godly desires to follow God with all that he has. And he knew he was going to get tempted. And he knew he was going to need to say no to the flesh. And he went out in the wilderness and did this, this, this battle. And what he brought with him was fasting. I love what this author, writer, ex-pastor John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies. He talks about fasting and says, Fasting is a way to turn your body into an ally in your fight with the flesh rather than an adversary. It talks about the idea that what fasting is is way deeper than just saying no to something so that you can make God happy or saying no to something so you can feel closer to God. What fasting is and what fasting does is it shows us that our flesh is not in control of us, but we are in control of our flesh. It shows us from the get-go that we are followers of the Spirit in this battle between good and evil, God and devil, flesh and spirit. Jesus went into the wilderness and he brought with him the power of fasting because it enabled him to follow the Spirit. You know, I always thought when he went into the wilderness, and I always told the story in Bible school and kids' church and all the other ways, I always thought that Jesus did this to prove to me that he was really, really great, you know? It's kind of like the fighter that wins the fight with one arm tied behind his back. I thought that, man, look how good God is. He said no to all this really cool stuff, and he did it while fasting. Like, fasting was a handicap on his ability to do what he needed to do. Like, he did these things while fasting. The reason Jesus did that was to simply show us how great he was. It's an adverbial kind of other on top of this is God, and this is how great I am. I can do all these things while fasting. I think we read it the wrong way. I think the reason Jesus went into the wilderness to battle his flesh and the reason why he fasted in doing that wasn't because he wanted to show us how great he was. He wanted to show us what fasting does in relationship to the desires of our flesh. So Jesus brings a fast to a fight with the flesh. Why? Because I firmly believe that fasting helps you control your flesh so that your flesh won't control you. That's why it's a practice. It reminds us what's really in control. It reminds us what's really important. It reminds us that we can say no to those desires because we have greater, deeper, bigger, richer disciplines that we want to follow. It allows us to say no to the surface stuff so we can live deeper into the underlying truths of God and his world. It reminds us that we can say no to the flesh because now we're people of the spirit. Fasting wasn't a handicap for Jesus. It was a helper. And so when we talk about the nature of fasting in our world, why do we do it? Because it reminds us what ultimately controls us. And we need that as a people in living in a culture that oftentimes pursues our delight over our discipline, that loves indulgences, that oftentimes culturally doesn't really say no to the things that we want often. So... So the role of fasting in our world, I think, is really important as followers of Jesus because it reminds us what actually controls us in a world that tells us we're controlled by desire. 
Richard Foster has a book named Celebration of Discipline. It's really one of my favorites. And he talks about fasting as a tool to show us what's really controlling us. He says, we cover up what's inside of us with food and other good things. But in fasting, these things surface. He says, anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear. If they're within us, they'll surface during fasting. At first, we'll, we'll rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we'll realize we're angry because the spirit of anger lives within us. Fasting helps control your flesh so that your flesh won't control you. So Jesus takes his weapon of fasting into the desert to do battle with his flesh and the devil, and he comes out the other side. And this is what I love about Hebrews. It says that we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize, but one that's been tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. The power of fasting is integral as we try and be a people that say no to our flesh. What role does it have in the life of believers? I think it reminds us who's really in control. It reminds us what we're running towards, what we're running from. It reminds us that the power of the Spirit is greater than the power of the flesh in a culture and in a world that only really pursues the power of the flesh in our lives. Fasting is integral. So that, that's why I think we've seen it from Genesis 1 up until the end of the New Testament as a practice and a tool to remind ourselves what's really in control, to remind ourselves that the flesh isn't what drives us, but the Spirit of God is. In his book, The Power of Habit, Charles Doug talks about uh, this idea of keystone habits, things that we do that set the stage for other things. So not all habits are created equally. Some habits have more power than others based on your temperament and personality and fill in the blanks here. And so he says, find your keystone habits and use those and set those in place first and then other habits will follow. So for some people, working out will set the tone for the rest of their day while brushing their teeth doesn't really do much outside of clean their teeth, you know? And so he says, find those keystone habits. I think in the scriptures, what we see throughout the scriptures is that fasting is a keystone habit of the people of God as they say no to the power of the flesh in our world. And so today... It's not a ton of application, just one. I think as we start a new year, as we come into new practices, we have to ask the question, what is the power of the flesh look like in my life? And how am I doing battle with it? And this is not a question to bring on guilt or shame, not at all. We're a grace-based church. We all fail a lot, and hopefully we have some victories in between the failures, and God is good in the middle of all of it. We ask the question simply to say, what? Is the power of the flesh doing in my life, and how am I fighting it? Next week, we're going to talk about specifics on what fasting can look like and probably should look like and our motivations behind fasting, but this week is simply about how are you doing battle with your flesh, and have you tried fasting? Because <laughs> I hear that it works. Because Jesus, in a fight with his flesh, brought fasting to show that he controlled, he was controlled by the Spirit. And that, that's why at the end, it says in Luke 4.14, at the end of this whole narrative, it says, Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. Sometimes as, as followers of Jesus, we forget that the greatest gift we have is that we walk every single day in the power of the Spirit. The, the, the scripture tells us the same power that rose Jesus from the dead goes with us each and every day. Sometimes we buy into the lie that we have to live a certain way because we can't overcome the temptations that we have. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm simply saying that the spirit's more powerful than the flesh, and we need to be reminded of that. Fasting does that for us. And then I go to places like Acts 2, 
where for the first time, the people of God walked in the spirit of God all the time, and it set the world on fire with people seeing how good God really was, day in and day out. It's a beautiful reminder and inspiration of what can happen as a people of God if we live into the spirit of God each and every day. It's a reminder what God calls us to control us and that the spirit wins. So we end today with how we began today. This is what a people in the spirit look like. The fruit of the spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As we fast, we're reminded (laughs) that those are the characteristics of those people controlled by the Spirit. And fasting is a way that we say no to our flesh because we were made for more. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful just for the practices you give us in, in your goodness the practices you give us to remind us who we are and whose we are, the practices you give us to help us fight the temptation that we live with each and every day and as Jesus did, be reminded that he is bigger than what tempts us. I'm thankful that we're reminded in these moments that it's not just to be better people, but it's to show that God is better and his way of living is better. The spirit is better than the flesh and you've given us ways day in and day out not to forget your goodness. As we go this week, may we chew on that question of how are we doing battle with our flesh? How is God calling us to say no to those things that aren't ultimately good and say yes to his spirit each and every day? As we continue to talk about fasting and feasting in the next couple weeks, open us up to the possibility of what can be if we are spirit-led people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.